brought to you by Penguin. And welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty, and today I'm going to be talking to Sinead Moriarty. Her novels have sold over 900,000 copies in Ireland and the UK, and readers love her for stories that are humane, moving and relevant to modern women. In 2015, she won the Irish Book Award for Popular Fiction for her novel The Way We Were. And her new book, Yours, Mine, Ours, looks at what it takes to create a blended family and it'll be published on the 7th of July. Um, I loved the book. Uh, I just finished it and I really felt like I knew all of the characters. All of them want kind of different things and I loved seeing all of their journeys. I loved seeing their individual challenges. I really felt like I understood each one, although Anna was the protagonist for me, um, the main character who's trying to blend her family with her new partner, James. I felt that you really represented um, the vulnerabilities of every character. And the thing that came through for me the most was the compassion that you had for them all. Is compassion an important thing to you when you're writing? That's gorgeous. First of all, thank you for that beautiful feedback. Compassion is huge. Yeah, it's really important for me to have warmth in books because certainly when I'm reading or watching stuff, it either has to be funny, moving or warm or ideally all three. That's the holy grail. And I think, you know, Yours, Mine, Ours is about a blended family two people who fell in love but they bring the baggage of children with them and that is a huge thing and I've got you know friends who are step parents and it's not straightforward and it's not easy sometimes it's hard enough to love your own children um, when they're teenagers never mind somebody else's then I wondered I started thinking about you know why should two adults whose first relationships didn't work out not fall in love but then if your children are deeply unhappy with this new arrangement is that selfish? You know, do you really have to put your kids first until they're 18? So I really wanted to explore that conflict as well. As you know, you're madly in love and you're in this beautiful love bubble, but your children are now forced to move into a new house and suddenly this complete stranger is now their brother or sister. I'm using inverted commas here. Um, and you kind of think, well, that's not easy and that's not necessarily fair. And, the, you know, the that saying you're only as happy as your most unhappy child is really true. Um, you know, I've got three kids and I know you know, when one's happy, one's sad, it's, they're never all happy at the same time. And certainly if I landed them with a whole new family in a whole new area, I think they would really struggle. So I really wanted to explore that. You know, does a mother's happiness mean that her children suffer? Or if your children are suffering, do you give up your happiness? Well, that pull is so, I mean, from the beginning, it's mm. just there. Her as a, a partner to her new lover, who she's so in love with, James, and he's everything that her ex-husband wasn't, mm. Connor. Although we do get to see Connor's good side as time goes on and see him as a vulnerable person who who's prepared to change. But it was interesting because at the beginning I saw... Anna's so excited about the new house and then her slowly beaten down by the fact that these three kids who are so different from each other, even Grace and Jack, her her biological children, mm. they're so different. They're different ages. They're at different stages of their life. And then Bella, who's James's daughter, comes from a completely different world of wealth and her mother doesn't give her any attention. And I thought... But they were all so believable. I could imagine them all as soon as they moved into this new house. And actually, we're about to move. It made me feel better about our moves. I was like, <laughs> at least I'm not trying to yeah. give my kids. Because were your parents, if you don't mind me asking, did you have you got experience of this? Not or, personal. No, yeah. My husband grew up in a, in a blended family. I yeah. didn't, no. 
But you've obviously imagined it so much and researched it, I assumed. You talked to a lot of people. I think it's research and I think also, you know, writers are observers of human nature. So you observe and you watch. And I've always been fascinated by families. All my books are about families. They're family based. This is the first blended family I think I've written about. But they're always about families who have to deal with the difficult situation because that's really interesting and it's also universal. So I think, you know, I always try and have books that are full of compassion and warmth, but also serious issues that people have to deal with because that's life. Life is full of darkness, shade and light. So I always try and bring a little humour in as well. And I really feel for all my characters. I'm, it's so lovely and gratifying that you're saying that you felt they're very well-rounded because I think it's really important not to have anybody who's sort of a caricature or just sort of thrown in because you feel that's what the book should have. I think everybody has to feel very real and very authentic because, you know, never underestimate your reader. It's true. And there are also what I love is that how surprised they are by their own feelings. Mm. You can never predict how Anne is going to feel. There are times that she shows great strength and bravery. There are other times that she's really human and gets so angry and you go, I would be exactly like that too. But as well as that bigger stuff, you've got, there's this bit towards the end where Grace, the older child of Anna's, calls her brother Jack in, who's 10, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And they're having quite a serious conversation. He's just fiddling with her alarm clock and changing the time of the alarm clock. And I loved that moment so much because it was just so realistic. And that's what I really love about the book. You're dealing with very serious stuff mm. and you're also dealing with disordered eating from the character of Bella and um, lots of different stuff for people and possibly depression for Connor, I think, maybe earlier mm. on in his life. That's what I got. But it's done with such warmth and compassion and joy that you never feel sad while you're reading it. Yeah. You just feel or like hopeless. this is this yeah. is reality. Yeah. Because people are flawed, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Jack is, you know, a football mad nine-year-old and James just cannot relate to him and he's trying really hard to relate to the stepson, but they really have nothing in common. And I just thought that would be really interesting as well because you kind of think, oh, a man suddenly has a son that he never had. This is great. They'll bond, they'll connect, but actually they drive each other absolutely nuts. And I just thought that would be interesting as well to explore. You know, it's not always easy. And also at one point, um, I think Grace says to Anna, you know, she goes, oh, look, you've got a sister. You're pretty much the same age. You, you're a stepsister. You can be friends. She goes, well, how would you feel if I brought this random woman home and said, there you go now. You can share a bedroom and off you go and be best friends. It just doesn't happen like that. No, it doesn't. And But I've done it before, even with going on holiday with other families of oh, you yes. when the, your kids were young and you kind of go, oh, great. You know, like my best friend's kids and yeah. we'll all hire a big cottage and all the kids. But it just doesn't work like no. that. It doesn't. It doesn't. And often when you try and force any kind of situation with children, they almost immediately sort of pull back. It has to happen sort of organically. Yeah, yeah, mm. it does. But I would have been like Anna. I think at the beginning, Anna, you know, we can see as a reader that she's perhaps trying too hard and trying to impose her rules. For instance, no phones at the table to her stepdaughter, Bella. And also just really wanting everyone to get on. So emotionally, I guess, kind of putting them under pressure. But I know that I would be the same. And I think it's a really common thing to go, look, I'm in love with this person. If I put enough work in, this will happen. And what I love is how everyone changes, including Anna and James. I'm not going to give away anything about the ending, but everyone has their own stuff to learn and their own journey to go on and it's such a satisfying 
plot as well as being so emotionally kind of resonant. So but that's really nice. And I think the thing is, Anna is desperate to make it work because she knows she has upended her children's life. She knows this is a huge risk. And if it doesn't work, then she has a second failed relationship. She's upended her children's life and made them miserable for no good reason. And I think as women and as mothers, we're desperate to make things work. We're desperate for our children to be happy. We're desperate to make everyone happy and, you know, try and create this lovely sort of happy home and a haven. But her desperation actually, unfortunately, is in, in a way her downfall. But I think as women and particularly as mothers, that's what we try and do. We try yeah. and make everything better. It's so true. It's so true. And it takes a lot of energy and you can really, really see that in her, really felt for her every step of the way. There's also her siblings, her yeah. brothers and her sisters. I loved the relationship between her and her sisters. They were so honest with each other. They were so warm. I could picture them all eating from the biscuit tin and then yeah. having tea and the differences between them and stuff. And when you're writing, how much do you pitch your characters and do you plan out like the layout of their houses and the kitchen where things are, the kettle and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'm a plotter and a planner, so I, I plan out my plots before I even start. I think, though, the reason the first draft is called the first draft is because by the end of the first draft, that's when you know exactly who the characters are, which is really why it's only the skeleton. And then you go back and then you start putting in all the main organs and the skin. So by the end of the book, I knew who they were. I could see their houses. So then I went back. Um, you add layers and I think more context and stuff. And that's why I think the third, fourth and fifth edits really make the book much better and you really know your characters. You can hear their voices. You can see them. I write quite visually. Like I can see where they are. I can see what they're eating and drinking. It's quite a lot of wine as well as tea. <laughs> and uh, Very important. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And do you think it's important, well, it is important, but how important do you think the relationship is with the editor? Because it's a very intense working relationship, isn't it? And it can get, yeah. your emotions are so bound up in the writing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I have lots of writer friends. I've been doing this for 20 years now. And some of them have had lots of different editors. I've been quite fortunate. I have had the same editor, Rachel Pierce, for about, I think, my last 10 or 12 books. And we have a shorthand now. And I always say your editor should be somebody who's smarter than you and somebody whose opinion you respect. And she is both of those things. And I'm not precious. I've, I'm perfectly open to people criticising my work and giving me their opinion. But at the end of the day, if I disagree with it, it's my book, it's my creation, it's my name. So then I won't change it. But 99% of the time, I know what she's going to say and I know that she's right and sometimes you know she can say something that will actually really bring the book to another level so every edit brings the book to a different level and even though I hate editing I know it's for the greater good and I am as I say very lucky to have this relationship with my editor it is a really really important relationship because if you don't feel the person gets what you're trying to do if you don't feel that they are invested in making the book better it can be I would imagine quite contentious so I think I'm very lucky yeah, it sounds you've got to hang on to her. Mm, She's yeah. got to hang on to you yeah, as well. No, I'm <laughs> clinging to her like a drowning man. <laughs> <laughs> it's that weird thing where I agree. It's like you can change elements of it, but it's like the fundamental part of it is pure and that's you. And if they try and mess with that, mm. I think that's when it feels like it's kind of going off road. Yeah. Whereas if they make, it's not that they're making um, superficial suggestions. It's just that they're 
trying to get the most out of that first draft and make it sing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. It feels so delicate when it's wrong and yet it feels so robust when it's right, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think, you know, fundamentally, you know where the loopholes are. You know that a character's not quite working and then you kind of have to figure out why. And I think it's really important, like, say, for example, Connor, who could be quite an unlikable character. Like, I had to really, really dig deep and go, well, why is he like this? And he's like this because he's had constant disappointments in his life and he never feels like he's enough. And that's why he behaves quite badly and quite childishly. And I really wanted him to come full circle as well. So I had to find the right person for him to meet to bring that out. Because sometimes if you never feel you're good enough, you need somebody to come along and see you through completely different fresh eyes. And that's what Millie does for him. And so I just think, again, Rachel kind of pointed that out. And so that made me really kind of dig down into into who he was and why he was the way he was. And it really works. I felt compassion for him by the end. I saw, you know, he wants to be a footballer. He has this injury early in his career. He's defined himself through that desire to be a footballer and then he's lost and it made me really feel for him and it was revealed at the right time because that's the other thing isn't it you don't want to go too early on hey this is why I'm like I am I'm still going to be a difficult person towards Mm. certain people but it's like the key moment you've got to wait almost you've got to let the reader go oh this guy how can he be so awful and then go oh okay I get it yes absolutely I mean and that's the interesting thing about backstory you have to drip it slowly and along along the book because your kind of initial will is just go this is why it's like this but you can't do that you have to let it happen sort of slowly and surely and reveal who the character is and why they are the way they are yeah absolutely Okay, well, let's move on to your first object. We always ask writers to bring in a few objects. And I thought we might start with a letter that means a lot to you. Oh, my goodness. So when I was a sort of new kid on the block, I was interviewed by a magazine, an Irish magazine. And in in one of the questions, I just happened to mention that Maeve Vinci was somebody who I was a huge fan of and that I really admired her. And I thought, you know, that she wore her global success so lightly. And she was always just so kind of gracious and giving. Anyway... Next of all, the postman arrived and it was a handwritten note from her to me, who again, I was a new kid on the block, I was nobody, but it was a beautiful letter saying, thank you so much for your kind words and saying, you know, aren't we so lucky to be writers? You know, people think we work hard, but really it's just so much fun, isn't it? And I just couldn't believe that she would have the generosity and the kind spirit to take the time to write me this letter, find my address and send it to me. And so I have it pinned above my desk and on bad writing days I look and I just think, you know, know, she's phenomenal, she took the time to write to me, I can do this. And I just think it was such a gorgeous thing to do. And she was always very generous in kind of paying paying it forward to new up and coming writers. And I, I hope, I certainly try to do the same. I think it's really important to pay it forward. And do you think those objects are important for when you are having difficult writing days, which everyone has, don't they? Yeah, I think hugely so. I have a cork board above my desk and I have kind of sort of some sayings that I find, you know, motivating. And I have, you know, some pictures and then I have right in the middle is my letter from Maeve Vinci. Yeah. Do you change things around on the cork board or do you kind of keep them the same? Not really, interestingly, not really. Um whether that's laziness or <laughs> I kind of just like the way it is. It doesn't matter though, does it, if it no, works for you? It does work, yeah. Yeah, like we've got, it's not exactly the same at all, but we've got a corkboard in our kitchen that I actually look at a lot because I often write in the kitchen and it's actually a mishmash of lots of different things. Like there's a postcard of Mrs Brown's boys that where <laughs> it's all spelt incorrectly that my friend sent me because of all the spelling mistakes. And yeah. that's, it's <laughs> like, what is this random yeah. collection of things? But when I look at that, it reminds me of Josie and yeah. that in turn, she's such a good hearted person great artist I'm like it's a weird thing sometimes you have a connection through the object that actually has nothing to do with the object itself I know it's funny and I actually had a 
I always kind of sort of hoped that I would end up on the Richard and Judy book club. So I had, I had a little thing of their book club, which I did end up, one of my books got chosen for it. And I, in a way, I kind of think also, without sounding too hippy-dippy, there's a little small level of visualisation going on as well. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's mm. not, you know, you wouldn't have stuff on there that you didn't want to be involved in. Exactly. It's got to work, hasn't exactly. it? Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. Exactly. Um, I know you've got quite a strict routine. Mm. You've said in the past that you work nine till two normally because mm. the kids finish school. school. Yeah. Is that still the case? Yeah, it is. It's funny. I've never been great in the afternoon. I kind of dip sort of from, even when I was working, I used to kind of sort of always dip between sort of three and five. So I'm a morning person, so it kind of suits me to get up and do my kind of biggest chunk of writing really between probably sort of nine and one. Um, and then in the afternoon, if when I get back, I might do some admin or answer emails or do whatever. But I also read a huge amount because it's separate to my writing. I'm a books ambassador for Eason's, which is like the Irish WH Smith. And they have a book club, which myself and Rick O'Shea run. And so we read long lists and then have eight choices every season. It's not dissimilar, actually, to the Richard and Judy one. But so I read a lot in the afternoons and evenings. But, you know, when you love what you do, it's not hard. Like, I don't want to be anywhere else. When I'm at my desk, I'm calmest and I'm happiest. So that's where I want to be. I don't want to be anywhere else. And I also think it helps to have that routine in a way, doesn't Mm. it? I know that you aim for 2,000 words a Mm. day. I used to aim for 1,000 when I wrote my novel. So 2,000, I was like, wow, I've got it. The key is aim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keyword there is aim. Yeah. yeah. But it's good to have those, isn't it? Like when I was young and I didn't, you know, I knew I wanted to write in some way and perhaps do comedy and act and stuff, but definitely write something. I think I used to think that writers just waited until inspiration struck and always were drinking black coffee and kind of yeah. were very cool. And actually, as you say, it sometimes does feel like hard work, especially on those days where sometimes you just feel you can't get started and you can't quite get into the world of it. But then, a lot of the time I'm like, I can't believe I get paid yeah. to do this as, as a job. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, funnily enough, the really hard days and you're kind of writing, you're going, oh, this is rubbish, rubbish. Sometimes when you read back what you've written the day before, they're actually the days where you've written really good stuff. And sometimes the days where you think, oh, this is such a funny piece. This is hilarious. That's going to get cut. So it's interestingly, I mean, sometimes when it flows, it, there is a beautiful thing and you know it's working. But sometimes on those really hard days, you're really pushing through. I always say, kind of describe it as you're just pushing through. You're putting one word in front of another. And even if you do end up editing 99% of it out, you still moved the book forward in some shape, manner or form. So that's really important. I think it's true. And it's almost like if you're working on something that you eventually cut or you move on from it, if it keeps getting rejected... I don't think that work's wasted, do you? I don't think any work is ever wasted. I was writing this book and it was a great idea, but I just couldn't quite get it to work. And I kind of would sit at my desk and I'd have a little bit of a pit in my stomach. But I kept thinking, no, I'll just push through. I'll get the first draft down and I'll be able to fix it. And then at the same time, Leanne Moriarty, the very, very famous um, Australian writer who wrote Big Little Lies, Mm. um, I'm Sinead Moriarty with the same surname. So when she came to Ireland, they asked me to interview her. So it was Moriarty meets Moriarty. So that was fine. And I was very excited to meet her. And I read her most recent book. And her book was the exact same plot as my book, except she had absolutely nailed it. And I realised that a good idea doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate into a book because I couldn't get my idea to work. So it was three couples who live in the same estate. They're friendly because of geography. And one night, one of them has a barbecue and something happens to one of the children. And I was writing the exact same novel, I cannot tell you. But she absolutely nailed it. And I put it in the bin. I knew it was, it was for the bin anyway. But it wasn't wasted because the book, when I finally let it go, which was painful because it was six months work, I allowed myself the space 
to write a book called The Good Mother, which I think is possibly my best book. And I went, God, you know, it's so important to let things go sometimes because then all of that's gone and you have this open headspace to let something else in. And what came in was The Good Mother. And it's a really good book. Sorry, well, it's, I'm proud of it. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Do you ever have a period where you think, I need to just go and look at art or mm. read and not yes. actually think about work for a period to kind of let ideas come in rather than constantly having to think, what am I going to do next? Yes, I call it like we have to fill your creative well. And I think it's really important after each book, I take a break and I go to see, to see loads of plays and I read lots of books and just, you know, observe and read and current affairs and all that kind of stuff. Just really open yourself up to filling your creative well, because if all you're doing is outputting, then there's no input. So you're, you're going to end up having uh, nothing left to give, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then conversely, when you are deep into the most creative period of the book, do you limit the amount of time you spend on the internet or watching the news or perhaps even socialising because you're saving all your energy for... That's really interesting, actually. It's a really interesting point. Um, I read a lot of non-fiction when I'm writing very intensely because I don't want the noise and the plot and the ideas of somebody else's book because my head is so noisy anyway because I'm trying to figure out plots and the characters talking to each other all the time. So I, read, I only really read non-fiction for those very intense writing months because I find that works for me. Now, obviously, for the book club, I have to read fiction, but I generally feel that, yeah, when you're being really really creative and when you're really in the middle of a book it's hard to let other things in yeah so I would kind of go not go dark it sounds but I kind of would have it lead a slightly quieter life for a little bit yeah that's and a really interesting point yeah which non-fiction books what are the ones you I read like I read, would read a lot of biographies yeah. memoirs um, whether you know people or moments in history that kind of thing yeah yeah I love memoirs I love biographies it's a different thing isn't it it hasn't got because mm. it's not a story in the same way even if it's a satisfying story, in inverted commas, of their life, it's a different part of your brain, I think, that's absorbing it. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Well, let's move on to your next object. And this is a happy place for you. Mm. Yes. So about four years ago, we moved home and we now live beside the sea. And I just think I'm just so lucky to live in a capital city by the sea. Um, it's like a village beside in the capital city. And so every morning uh, before writing, not every morning, because I'm... As, as many mornings as I can, drag my ass out. I go for a walk by the sea. I actually usually do listen to sort of podcasts or something. But even while I'm listening, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And it just, I suppose it kind of gets me moving. The scenery is beautiful because it's just the sea and the sky. You're kind of looking at infinity. And there's something, I don't know, there's something very kind of moving about that, I think. And I walk up and down the pier and I think about things and I come home and then I'm ready to write. And I just feel so lucky to do that. And the other reason I feel very lucky to do that is because seven years ago I became very unwell and I was in hospital and they finally figured out that I had rheumatoid arthritis. And I had a very aggressive form when it, when it first sort of flared up. It was extremely acute. So it took me a long time to sort of get myself back, I suppose, physically. So I couldn't go for a walk. I could barely walk from the bedroom to the kitchen for a while. So it, I really, really appreciate being able to go for those walks and have that kind of lovely start to my day because for a while I couldn't. And so I really, I think I appreciate things a lot more, particularly movement and kind of being physically well, which I am now, which is great. Yeah, I knew about your um, rheumatoid arthritis from a, a brilliant podcast you did. I've got an inflammatory joint disease called ankylosing spondylitis. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Um, wow, they're not dissimilar. They're not dissimilar. And I, I haven't been in as much pain from it as you have from hearing you talk about it. But there were years and years where I was in daily pain and no one knew what was wrong with me. And I felt really lost and kind of 
like people didn't believe me and I was What young. age were you when you first got it? Well, when I first got diagnosed, I was actually over 30, but it had been going on since I was 18 and everyone oh, kept gosh. saying, you've got a bad back. And then in my 20s, I'd have sciatica to the point where I was limping constantly. Oh, and people would just kind of think, right, okay, well, that's how Izzy walks. And I was like, something's wrong. And everyone just kept saying I had a bad back. Oh, and it gosh. took so long to get diagnosed. And I really identified with something you said, which was that you felt... Well, this is how I, what it made me think. Um, you may not have phrased it like this, but I used to feel like I was watching everyone through a kind of frosted glass, mm. like I was almost in the room, but I wasn't. Because you're, when you're in chronic pain, mm. and not only that, when there's no solution, I think that's really, really hard. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure there'll be people listening who, it, it can be any kind of pain, can't mm. it? You know, it's just that thing of, I think, coupled with there not being a plan. It's so hard. Do you feel like you now have just moved on? Do you sometimes take stock and go, hey, I, I really know what you mean as well, by the way, about being able to just go places and walk and going, well, I, I don't have to think about being pain in pain. free, yeah. Do you feel like you just sometimes go... I'm so grateful. Or do you feel like you kind of carry in a good way that gratitude constantly of being better? That's a very good question. Only somebody who's been through it could ask you that. I remember saying to somebody, the best thing about how I am now is I don't think about it anymore. Like I inject myself every couple of weeks. I've come off all the really, really hard medicine that I hated and that made me crazy. So it doesn't consume my life anymore. It's, It's like rheumatoid arthritis doesn't consume my life I'm just somebody who happens to have it now I can say that very lightly because I have no pain at the moment and I'm feeling great and I'm mentally good and you know it's taken a long time to get to this point but when it was bad it consumed me and I I resented that I resented that it was consuming my life and I resented the fact that they couldn't fix it because I think we you know we are from a generation of something's wrong fix it something's wrong go to the doctor get a pill fix it fix it fix it but because it was so acute they just they were fighting fire with fire and they couldn't get it under control and I kept thinking Jesus, am I going to end up like this for the rest of my life? Am I going to be a burden on my family? I mean, there were times when I had to be carried to the loo and I thought, oh God, like how am I actually going to live with this? And I really found that hard. I used to lie awake at night. I'd never, ever had a panic attack in my life. I was having panic attacks all the time. But it was more panicking about, I just didn't want to be a burden on, on anybody. And I thought, you know, God, you know, I've always been go, 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 go. And I've been blessed with really good health. So to be suddenly felled and absolutely knocked out, I found that really difficult, but you know, it, I know it's easy to say now again because I'm feeling well, but I do think it's made me a more compassionate person. I do think I've got more empathy and I appreciate good health and not having pain so much. Yeah. I think that figures totally. The toll it takes on you psychologically yeah. when your whole identity changes, mm. the anger that you feel from having to think about it constantly and from feeling that you're defined by it, I think takes time to resolve. And one good thing that can come out of it is that compassion. Mm. Maybe not only just for people who are in pain, but just generally kind of thinking, you never know what people are going through, do you? That's so true. And I also think you never know what's coming around the corner. So get out there and when you feel good, do everything, you know. Again, having been very blessed with my life until then, I I was so taken aback. I felt like I'd been hit by a truck and then I went, well, why not me? Sure, why wouldn't happen to me? And why wouldn't worse things happen? So I think I go, okay, right, it's good. Let's do everything we can do while things are good. Yeah. Yeah. I found it hard to accept because I was like, oh, no, no, I'm blessed. Like, I almost felt like, I'm blessed. I've had an easy life. That wasn't completely true, but I was like, Mm. it was almost this armour of like, no, 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 this can't be happening to me. And it's hard to accept that life is random, isn't it? Yeah, very random. But I have to say, I remember kind of 
when I was in hospital, they were thinking, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. And I remember thinking, oh no, I'll take rheumatoid arthritis. Give me that. I'll take that because, you know, it is solvable or manageable because there were so many other nasty old things that it could have been. So I, I kind of left hospital going, no, I'll take this. Yeah. Yeah. And have you always had that connection to the sea, like when you were a child? Well, I grew up by the sea, yeah. So I, my my kind of childhood home was sort of literally three steps away and we grew up. My mother's father lived with us, my granddad, and he went swimming in the sea every single day. So I suppose very connected to the sea. And also I think when you grew up on a small island, you know, we are a small island on the very edge of Europe. Yeah, the sea is a big thing. Yeah, and I feel so lucky to live beside it now. And I'm trying to get into sea swimming. I'm quite a cold person, but I'm trying to get into sea swimming now. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. I think, do you have to build up your tolerance? I think so. And I think, you know, it's, uh, well, I've, I've now invested in the boots and the gloves and which uh, mean your extremities are not frozen when you get in because it is absolutely Baltic. But apparently, you know, the a lot of my friends got into it in COVID and the the mental high and all those kind of, you know, physical and mental benefits, I kind of go, well, I live beside it. I should try. So my project for this year is to be a sea swimmer. Wow. Well, a sea dipper, should I say. Yeah, exactly. As long as you go in. I'm only bobbing up and down. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, let's move on to your next object. And this is something you probably should have thrown away. Oh, yeah, this is funny. So these are my fluffy socks. I have these manky old fluffy socks but I wore them when I gave birth to my first child who is now 17 Uh, I probably should have thrown them away but every time I go to throw them away I just go no I can't because I had struggled with infertility and when I had them it was the most joyful beautiful day of my life and um, I just can't throw them out and I along with giving birth to him I wrote my first book which was The Baby Trail well actually it was my third book the first two books were turned down but The Baby Trail was about a couple struggling with infertility and so I began this amazing life as a writer and then I got pregnant I think because I got so much angst out by writing the book and then he came along and I just thought no they're they're my miracle socks. Yeah isn't it funny how it's sometimes something like that rather than I don't know their first baby grow or something yeah it's it's something that's symbolic just to you yeah that if someone else saw it they'd think oh it's just a pair of socks but it means so much. Yeah. Did you find when he was born that I found it really hard to concentrate on creative things and it surprised me because that had been always something that sustained me kind of thinking about the next project. Were you surprised about that? Did you experience it? after? So that's how you felt after the birth of your first child? Yeah, when they were newborn. Um, You know, it's funny. I think, no, not really. I think, um, I mean, obviously I took some time off to be with them. I don't know, I think the book I wrote was probably more joyful than previous books when I just had them. Not really, interestingly, no, not really, no, actually. Um, you know, the whole thing with the, the baby in the pram is that murders creativity. No, I actually didn't find that. Um, I found I was just more, a lot better at time management. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. Had to be, Because I had day, all day and all night to write and suddenly I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And were you promoting the book quite soon after the birth? Um, well, actually, the bo- when the book came out, I got pregnant and my PR person was going, oh, my God, this is so great. And I'm going, well, it's actually great because I'm pregnant. But yes, yeah. I'm, delighted, I'm delighted it's going to fit into your, to your PR plan as well. So I was heavily pregnant promoting the book, which was, I suppose, it was a lovely story because it was about infertility and I had suffered from infertility. And then I've been blessed. And I know how blessed I am, by the way. I have a lot of friends who, who suffer from infertility and didn't get, get get to have children. So I know how blessed I am. So, yeah, it was all kind of, it was a really beautiful year of my life. I sometimes think with these difficult situations that can be tremendously difficult, like um, fertility struggles, how how do you think humour can help? I think humour is 
really important. I think humour for me when I was going through it, you're completely out of control, right? So you don't, I had an unexplained infertility. So suddenly I had no control and I felt like was failing as a woman. And so the only way I could feel less frightened and give myself a little bit of control back was by making fun of all the crazy treatments and, you know, the poking and the prodding and all the things. God, being a woman. Anyway, (laughs) spent a lot of time with your legs and stirrups. But um, I felt if I could laugh about it, it made it less frightening. And I think that's true across the board. You know, if you can laugh at something, and you know this as a comedian, if you can laugh at something and poke fun at it, it just makes things less scary, more manageable, gives you release and I think you know again with my books is always darkness and shade because even a funeral people laugh it's just a way of dealing with pain. Yeah you're right I was thinking about my dad's funeral the other day and we were laughing at one point I thought god how how can we be laughing but it kind of has to come out doesn't it as you say there's always both of those things it's the push and pull Mm. Yeah. Um, Well, let's move on to your next object. Um, And this is something that prompted you to change direction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is the picture I think people probably remember of Alan Kurdi. He was the Kurdi. I I think I'm pronouncing it properly. He was a two year old Syrian boy who drowned. And there's a famous picture of him. And he's wearing a red T-shirt. He drowned trying to get to Greece from Turkey. And that stayed with me. It just it, The image just haunted me. I just couldn't get it out of my mind. And I've written adult books for, I suppose, for about 17 years at the time. But this picture, I kept thinking, I have to do something with this. I have to write something about this. And it wouldn't let me go. And I tried to figure out how to write, you know, another adult novel around it. But eventually, I just had this very strong image of a little Syrian girl with a backpack going to school in Ireland. And so that became my first children's book which I wrote, I I sort of, I was working on it in the background for a couple of years. I worked at the Refugee Council of Ireland. I met this incredible Syrian family who've become a huge part of my life, particularly Sarah Al-Hariri, who I dedicated the book to. Sarah was 17 when I met her. And her two sisters, her mother and herself, had come, had been smuggled from Syria through Turkey and then eventually ended up in Greece and had uh, landed in Ireland. And I just really wanted to write a book. Safa, who's my character, is 11 and she comes to Ireland and she goes to this local school and she's like a fish out of water. And she's the teacher asks Ruby to look after her. But Ruby also has a lot of problems. Ruby's Irish, but she has a, a brother with um, very severe disabilities who was born four years prior and her whole family's been turned upside down and her parents never have any time for her anymore. So Ruby feels very isolated and the two become great friends and they end up helping each other. And I just felt so strongly with the Syrian refugee crisis. And, so, and you know, little did I know that we were going to have the situation in Afghanistan and the situation in the Ukraine at the moment. It's so important to get to kids early. If we can get to kids early and open their minds and their hearts to empathy, to tolerance, to acceptance, I really think, because they are the future, that they can make a massive difference. And they're so, like I do talks in schools all the time and it's been such a joyful experience. Even though I'm writing about a fairly heavy subject and my next children's book is going to be about homelessness. Again, children are well able to deal with serious subjects if you do it with a lightness of touch and that's the key to do it with a lightness of touch and they're so great and they're so honest and they're so open and I find finding this whole space so joyful I'm really really enjoying it and it's amazing out of such a tragic image I just have found this great space and I'm going to continue writing adult novels and I'm going to continue writing children's novels because I'm really enjoying it and I just feel very strongly that we have to get to kids early and we have to open their little minds and hearts because they're like little sponges they will accept anything and so I think if we can get to them early and really, really get them to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, because that's the key. And that's what books do. They get a child to sit, be quiet 
and walk a mile in somebody's shoes. And I know I've got three teenagers. The minute they got a phone, their reading fell off a cliff. So we have to get to them early. <laughs> yes, it's yeah. so true. Yeah, they're not going to be reading books on their phones, are they? No, not really. Um, yeah, it's a work in progress, but it's breaking my heart a little bit. But I, my older son is coming back. I, I, he's finally coming back to books, but it's just they kind of fall off a cliff, I feel. Not all, obviously, but a lot of teenagers about sort of 13 so you know my books children's books are aimed at sort of 8 to 13 year olds so we'll see and I know it's really different promoting a children's book Mm. and doing all the tours and the festivals and stuff Mm. how does it work when you go into a school do you normally read from it and then talk to them about the themes in the book yeah so I have a little uh, PowerPoint presentation and it explains you know obviously for this book it explains what exactly what a refugee is and we talk about it and then I do a little exercise which they they love actually I go okay you've got five minutes to leave your house you've got a small backpack you can only pack five things what are you going to pack and they love all that and they love talking about it. And yeah, that, again, question and answers lasts quite a long time. But they're really open to like learning. I, I explained to them about Syria. We look at the map. We look at the journey they've taken. And it's just really interesting. And they're really honest. And if they don't like a character, they tell you straight out why they don't like it. And I always kind of go, OK, that's interesting. Now, why? Or, or if they like something, they'll tell you that. And so it's just really joyful as a word that keeps coming to mind. Yeah. Would you ever consider going in when the manuscript was more of a work in progress like with a first draft and testing things out or yeah that's interesting actually I suppose it's like a like a comedian practicing their stand-up yeah yeah I haven't thought about that I suppose because I'm quite new to the whole sphere but yeah interestingly I might actually actually what's been really nice about it is my kids have got involved so my three kids read it and they all gave me their very honest and blunt opinions they all had a different color pen so I knew who was saying what boring, take it out, there's no way a kid would say this, (laughs) all that kind of stuff. And it's actually been really nice. And I said to them, if I get this published, you're all going to get a bonus. So they got paid for it. Did they? It's been really nice having their involvement. And I think, and they actually became quite invested in it. And it actually won the book award last year. And they were really pleased. And I thought, this is really nice. I felt like it was a kind of a communal effort. Yeah. And with children's books, is it about helping them to imagine making it about them in the sense of like saying you have a backpack you have five things then they're going to think of their bedroom they're going to think which things are important to me so instead of it being a faraway place in this kind of generalized Mm. thing that they can't imagine is that the key does that build the bridge to them understanding I think so it's it's like just trying to get them to put on the shoes of somebody else and go okay what would it be like what would that feel like and that's the best way to do it and that's the beauty of literature that's the beauty of books you know if you think back to your favorite book as a child like why did you connect with that book because the writer made you actually live the life of the character, literally inhabit their life, their family, their house, their experience. And I think that's the beauty of books for children. And yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to be that they're similar, does it? it Not at all. It be, you know, for very young children, a dinosaur who can't roar. But there's something yeah. about that dinosaur that makes them be able to imagine how scary and weird that would be. Yeah, but look at Harry Potter. I mean, who has Harry Potter's life? But you are you are in that world. It's about, it's about being transported, I suppose. That's the word I'm looking for, to mm. transport them. Yeah. And you tackle disordered eating, as I mentioned, with the character of Bella in the new book, very sensitively, I thought. And um, I just wondered, you said that you plot things really carefully before you start. Mm. Did you know that Bella would would have disordered eating or did you think, I think that her stress is going to manifest itself in some way, but I don't quite know until I get to it that, that that's what it's going to be? Yeah, I wrote a book called Pieces of My Heart a few years ago and the main character had a severe eating disorder. So I did a huge amount of research into the whole area. Now that book, she goes very, very dark. She's very, very unwell. And so with this, I wanted it to be, with the previous character, it was very much um, control and all that. With Bella, it's 
almost more of a cry for help because she's kind of ignored by her mother. Her mother loves her, but she doesn't really have enough time for her. And then she gets dumped with this new family and with her and her dad. And he was kind of her person. And again, she's out of control. And also her school friend is so competitive. Her school friend is really competitive. And it's at that kind of very tricky teenage age where suddenly it's all about how you look. And obviously we live in a world of Instagram and social media. And so I just kind of wanted to let that happen to her and see where that went. But I was always quite sure that it wasn't going to go to a dangerous place with Bella. Sure, you sure. Know, that was not how her story was going to end. Yeah. yeah, that was similar for me when I was 16. I began to, really? for a few months, it was like I was at a crossroads and it was kind of like, okay. oh, I'm getting really obsessed with. And then for whatever reason, it didn't go down that road. And I'm very grateful But I'm for sure that. you have friends who did. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was kind of, you know, it was a lot of what we talked about and that was the 90s and I'd love to think that things have changed now but we didn't even have phones then so it's like but it's a fine line you really have to like put the brakes on or it can go to a whole other level Uh yeah yeah well I thought it was so so realistically written okay well this is your last object and it's a book that you loved as a child yes so again we're talking about books and and the effect they have and the power they have so when I was a kid my favorite book was Little Women and the reason I loved it so much was because of Joe March, who is the second of the four sisters. And Joe wanted to be a writer. And Joe, uh, you know, was up in the attic writing away and she was being turned down and rejected and she was a bit despondent, but she kept going. And then fast forward to me, I'm living in London. I'm working as a journalist, but I'm writing for a marketing magazine. And I actually think I'm lose, going to lose the will to live if I don't do something more creative. So I joined this very standard random writing course in Maida Vale College and I go after work every Tuesday and it just becomes this kind of obsession I'm writing in every single spare moment I have and as I said my first two books failed miserably to get published Uh, I spent more money on stamps than food and I was rejected 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 and then there came a moment where you kind of go okay like, am I doing this for the glory of being published or am I doing this because I love it? And I went, OK, this may never happen for me. It's not looking too good at the moment. But I really love writing. I really love expressing myself creatively. So the tutor in the course was really encouraging to me. And then, you know, life gave me my idea because I was sitting in the fertility clinic in London and looked around and all these women were looking equally despondent. And I thought, I'm going to write about this because this is not fun and if I can make it funny and if I can be really honest and that's the thing about my books I try and make them really honest and raw but again with humour I said maybe people will relate to it and that was The Baby Trail and that was my first book to be published and I always used to think back to Jo going no you know Jo stuck at it she stuck in her heels and kept going and so it's funny how a book that I read so long ago did stick with me it's powerful yeah And when you joined the group, I suppose you weren't necessarily thinking this is going to enable me to get published. It wasn't just the group that did that anyway, but would probably help to have that meeting to go to every week. and Yeah, and also I was very private. I didn't want to show my writing to anybody. And God, we were a mixed bag. There was a retired copper and he used to go to me, look, love, this isn't really my bag. I'm going to be honest with you. He goes, but I'm always really interested to know what happens next. And I thought, okay, well, that's encouraging. Uh, He was obviously writing a police procedural novel and... um, And the tutor encouraged me. And it's like finding your tribe. I found my tribe. Everyone there had the same wishes and dreams and hopes. And when the course ended, there was five of us who were just, you you can spot kindred spirits, who were just really not going to give up. And we used to meet every Tuesday in a pub and then we'd read each other our, our chapters or one of the guys was writing a play. 
And what was interesting was that was the first time I really realised there was a guy from the Northern Ireland who was in our group and he was by far the most talented. I mean, he was standout. He, he was writing a play. It was just an absolute knockout. But he was an engineer by day and he wasn't really that bothered. He was writing because he kind of enjoyed it. And I kept saying to him, you have to finish the play, you have to finish the play. Anyway, we lost touch and I always wondered, did he ever finish the play? But it made me realise that as well as having, obviously, a level of talent, you also need hard work, tenacity, determination and not to give up, you know? Yeah, it's just like that with stand-up. Like, especially at the beginning, I've been doing it for 20 years, you see people who are so funny in this kind of raw, feral way, but they just kind of drop off the circuit after a couple of years and it's almost like they burnt themselves out or something. They just never wanted to go to Slough for a tenner and go (laughs) to St Andrews and be out of pocket, go to a uni gig in front of like, I don't know, sometimes no one turning up and you're doing it to the other comics. And um, I sort of look back on those days with rose-tinted glass, but I know exactly what you mean. I sometimes almost think that the hard work is slightly more important than the talent. You know, it's equally as important. It really is. I really noticed that. I really have. And I remember I, I wrote a column for years for the Irish Independent. And I remember I had many different editors, actually. And one of them said to me, look, you always deliver on time. And that's half the battle, to be honest with you. You know, and so I do think that. And listen, I, as, as you've done comedy to nobody, I've done talks to Joe, the security guard and the librarian. And, you know, it's a bit sort of, you know, yeah. humiliating, but you kind of go, oh, what the hell, you know. But again, when you look back, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny, exactly. And, and I, I always think when I'm in a situation, I always think, this is going to be a funny story. Yeah, me yeah. too. Even with breakups, I mean, this sounds awful, but with breakups, I used to think, I'll be able to use this one day, which is terrible. Well, it's funny because my editor always goes, it's material. Everything is material. I go, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so true. <laughs> what I love about the book is how it swings from perspective to perspective. So you're not always with Anna. Mm. I still feel that she's the one who's the protagonist for me. And mm. maybe it's because I'm most identified with her, especially when she suggests this camping trip. Oh God, and it's yeah. when they've been living together for a little while, isn't it? And no one's getting on. And she does exactly what I would have done, which is like, right, we'll make everything better. We'll go away from this house. We'll go camping and everyone will just go out into nature. And I couldn't stop laughing. And James's reaction, he just obviously so doesn't want to go. It really made me laugh because we actually had this conversation the other day where I was like, no way. can we go? I mean, not because I'm trying to blend the family, yeah. um, but just because I'm, I guess I'm trying to have a nice holiday because my yeah. partner hates holidays, really. Oh, no. um, and I, my friend owns a camping site. They run it. It's this eco-friendly. So I said, can we go there for my birthday and I could just see his face and I thought of James when I saw his face I thought I know what's going on in your head but I'm going to make you do it. I know because you do have that you know rose tinted thing of well, if we all go away and leave our phones at home and get away from technology and we're not all in different rooms looking at different screens we'll have this lovely lovely time and in fact it's an absolute car crash which often is and certainly when we used to go away when the kids were small I remember my, my brother saying to me why do you bother there's no point leaving the country until the youngest is at least five there's just no point and I go, no, we're going to go, we're going to go to France, we're going to have this lovely time. And it was actually generally just hard bloody work in the sun. Yeah, you just, think, <laughs> yeah. yeah, my friend said the other day, it's just stress in a different yeah. place. Yeah. As you say, in the sun, you're eating yeah. tapas, but it's still the same. And they don't, didn't like sand and it was too hot and they got, <laughs> got heat rash. You went, why did I bother? <laughs> Do you like holidays now? Are you good at oh, taking a break? Yeah. Um, and actually, I think 
post-COVID, like I, any gap in the hedge and I'm gone. And also it's much easier. We actually went to Morocco, which is myself and the three teens. My husband couldn't come and we had a ball. We went to this, uh, this good, lovely hotel on the beach and they're, you know, up and running. And I read three books, three books in one week. I had the time and space to do that. So yeah, it's lovely now. It's much easier. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Mm, it's easier. Yes, it better. I'll make it to Morocco <laughs> one day. Um, well, thank you. It's been so lovely to talk to thank you Thank you so today. much. It's been gorgeous. Oh, good. Um, well, there's one last question. Would you recommend something for our listeners to read, um, either from your reading pile at the moment or maybe an old favourite? Um, gosh, there's so many books. I know, I it's so hard, much. Isn't it? I know. Um, I do a podcast myself with a fellow co-writer called Anna McPartland. And her books are wonderful. So Anna McPartland, her books are, again, that lovely, warm humour with absolute bite. She herself has had quite a complicated life and her books are just that lovely kind of, you know, lightness and darkness. And some of your listeners may not have heard of her, but she's well worth checking out. Okay, uh, and probably her best book, I think, is probably The Last Days of Rabbit Hayes. Okay, so The Last Days of Rabbit Hayes by Anna McPartland. Well, thank you so much for listening wherever you are. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. Finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Sinead's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time. Listener.